You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome, folks, to the Freshwater Bite Podcast, your source for everything freshwater fishing. I'm your host, Lee Kleino, and on this podcast, you will hear from diehard anglers like yourself, the backstories of those anglers, techniques they use, gear reviews, and everything in between. So if you like fishing, turn it up, because this episode's about to kick off right now. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 30. And on today's podcast, I am joined by Jim Ludden. Jim is a biology teacher at a community college up in Ontario, Canada. And the reason why I have Jim on the podcast today is he was and to some extent still involved in an extensive study that, uh, you know, looks at the effects of smallmouth bass being separated from their fry when they are on their nest through different variables, whether that be through, uh, you know, hook sets with anglers, um, you know, picked up and moved to other locations, taken off the nest that way, and, and a variety of other um, implications that, uh, that they introduce into the study. But I think it's important for us as anglers to realize what we do and how we impact our fishery when we make the decision to, you know, to sight fish for bass and, you know, pursue them when they're on their nest and pull them off their nest. You know, maybe in the past, it might be your favorite way to go after these fish. Um, you know, I think some folks might think differently after hearing this, this podcast and this episode of the results that Jim presents to us and what they found out in their study. And I, and it, it's going to take us as anglers to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, what kind of anglers are we? How are we impacting our fisheries? And you know, how are we going to change our practices to to benefit the future um, populations of our, our fisheries? Anyways, Jim is nice enough to climb to the top of the hill to get a signal so that he could conduct this interview with me. Um, there's parts where the signal's not as great, but for the most part, you hear what he has to say. Lee. Hey, how you doing? How are man? you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks for your uh, patience and persistence. Uh been a, a little bit of a goose chase for us. Yeah, it's all right. I, I didn't know that, uh, you know, you don't have the best signal there and you just kind of check your phone every once in a while. That's what Matt was telling me. We have a horrible, uh, we actually have a horrible signal here. In fact, I'm, I can't be in our cottage anymore. I'm up on the hill above our cottage and I have like two bars out of four. Oh my God. And <laughs> even this, yeah, and even this morning, our wireless was crashed all morning. Our, our sorry, our um, our router, our, our internet was down all morning, and it it blinks in and out all the time. So oh man, it really yeah, and a lot of drop calls, a lot of no service, and so it, it's very frustrating. Uh, <laughs> is it is now still an okay time to talk? It now, it, for me personally, it's a great time to talk. Okay, who perfect. knows what'll happen? With the connection, but right now, I'm, like I said, I'm sitting up top, and I have two bars on a Bell LTE. You know, perfect. So we'll see what we can do. Hey, so you know, there's a couple of reasons why I got you on the podcast. One is where you're going to talk to us a lot today about uh, kind of uh, the the nitty gritty of bass, but 
Um, before we get too far into that, I want to the folks just to get to know you a little bit and, uh, you know, just where you grew up or where you reside now and uh, the type of fish that you'd like to kind of go for. Sure. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a Chicago native, actually. I uh, grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. But um, really, my intrigue in fishing came about uh, as uh, my parents, and it was really my mother's side, uh, and all relatives, about 17 cottages on a little lake in Indiana called Flint Lake, uh, just outside of Valparaiso, Indiana. And so I spent every childhood year all summer long from school out to school start up in Valparaiso at this, back then, really rural lake. Uh, it had bass, it had northern pike, uh, it had crappie, uh, largemouth, small, nope. Sorry, largemouth definitely, but no smallmouth. <laughs> and um, also had, you know, of course, assortment panfish and perch and whatnot. Um, so even though my parents were not uh, anglers themselves, uh, I, uh, being on the lake and having first, you know, Minn Kota trolling motor on a John boat at the age of about, you know, six or seven, I was able to go out on the water and uh, try, out, try out my luck uh, fishing and teaching myself. My Uncle Tom was uh, really instrumental. He's, a, he's a, a, an avid hunter, an outdoorsman. A sportsman and of course fishing is, is part of that and he's really the one that um that got me into fishing taught me some of the basic ropes and i guess it was just my own keen interest and in, and in ever pursuing desire to try to get a, a fish on the line that kept me intrigued and kept me reading in fisherman articles and and going to you know tackle shops and talking to people or going to some of the the outdoor sports shows and things like that just sort of self-educated uh, as I said, because my parents were not at anything, uh, had never even really held a fishing pole in their lives. So I was kind of self-taught. Um, and so, uh, but, but that, that was um, back when I was younger. And then as I got in my teenage years, my Uncle Tom, same Uncle Tom that taught me the ropes when I was a kid, he used to take us up to uh, northwestern uh, Wisconsin for a week every summer. And then it became uh, a couple weeks every summer uh, to Hayward, Wisconsin. And we'd fish a lot of lakes around uh, Hayward, Wisconsin. Uh, some of the lakes escape my name. Uh, some of the names of the lakes escape my memory right now. Okay. But things like Couderay and, and things like Round Lake and, and Hayward, Wisconsin was a great place because then we had more species, including muskie and smallmouth, on top of all the other species I was used to catching. And we just thought we really it was all about the fishing. So it was wonderful. So what do you like to go for nowadays? Like, what's your favorite go-to? What do you like to fish for? I really like to fish for uh, smallmouth bass. Uh, I, I would love to do more musky fishing, uh, but but I don't have the opportunity because where I'm where I am right now, I spend my summers in in uh, uh, basically southeastern Ontario. Okay, and that, ha- that is a long story behind behind why, but uh, eventually, my wife is Canadian. And we want to be near her family for the summers because we're both teachers and we both have our summers off. And so we now spend pretty much the complete summer, every summer, up at our cottage uh, in um, uh, southeastern Ontario. Oh, no way. What do you teach? So so I teach biology. In fact, that's one of the reasons I had to go to graduate school to to earn a master's degree because I wanted to, my my career goal was was to teach uh, community college biology. Okay. That's what I do. I'm a community college biology teacher, and so is my wife. My wife is a, a community college earth science and geology teacher. And since we have the the university academic calendar, we get nice long summers, and uh, we're or we're fortunate enough to be able to be at a, a cottage up in in, in Ontario for the, for the summer. Not too much musky up here, but lots of smallmouth, lots of largemouth. There's even lake trout in the lake that we're on, and I'm just kind of just 
getting used to learning a little bit about uh, lake trout fishing. Not very good <laughs> at it, but uh, <laughs> every once in a while I can get one on the line. Um, but really, it's your, your traditional sport there. Pike, the large and fast, small and fast, and, uh, and, and lake trout here a little bit from time to time. So, you know, how did you get so involved with, like, the research aspect of it when it came to, um, you know, like bass and just fishing in general? Is it just your natural love for biology that kind of led you down that path? Um, I, well, I, I think definitely. Um, I, I, it was my natural love of the outdoors and animals and nature, and basically fishing was right in part of that. I was never, I was never a hunter. Uh, I, did, I thought it was bad for killing the animals, but but that was you know that was back then, and still I probably am a little bit like that. But I uh, hunting, I do believe in, and actually I know I could hunt if I really needed to. Right. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so, but I just was more into the angling side of it. And then, like I was saying, it goes back to, you know, the segue, uh, uh, your question segues nicely back to what I was just talking about. The fact I knew I needed to get a master's degree to be able to be eligible uh, to have the proper credentials to teach at a community college level full-time. And so I, I basically uh, got accepted uh, after doing two years at, at, at community college. I got accepted and, and went to the University of Illinois. And I had heard of this program, this opportunity, whereby you can earn up to five credit hours toward your undergraduate degree. And in those five credit hours, you can use them to volunteer in a research lab of your choice. So there's a long list of professors who were looking for triple E 320 students or something like that. And that, those were the credits you could earn five credits by simply just volunteering in a research laboratory. And so being the naturalist, being the, 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 the uh, you know, fisherman and angling enthusiast I was, I literally went down the list, this long list of professors, and I just looked for whoever was involved with fish. <laughs> Smart <laughs> and man. literally I went in alphabetical, yeah, I went in alphabetical order and I got to the P's. And this one fella, uh, Dr. David Phillip, uh, basically had looked, was looking like the evolutionary uh, consequences of, of angling and, and, and angling management on freshwater game species. And that's what he put in, in his, his little blurb. And I said, oh, that sounds awesome. I pick up the phone. Back then it was old school phones, right? right. Dialed. And all of a sudden had him on the line within 30 seconds. And I said, I, you know, I'm, I just want to be a triple E 320 student. I love to fish. He's like, great. I, I have another fellow yourself. I'm meeting him today. Come on down, come to my lab. We're on the south part of campus. We have all these experimental ponds out there. We do research on, find me out there. We'll meet you at two o'clock. We'll talk. So I went out there with another fellow who I didn't know at the time, but the two of us sat in a chair in front of this, this professor and he was dynamic, passionate. And, uh, he basically said, I'm going to tell you something. There's more freshwater research done out of this lab and a couple other counterparts, Dave Wall and a couple others than, than anywhere else in the Midwest heart, just about. He goes, you've come to the right place. And he said, you wouldn't think it middle the cornfields and champagne, but man, we do a lot of, of fisheries research here. So I said, well, I'd love to volunteer. And so the volunteering turned into then a paid assistantship undergrad, just like doing, you know, mowing lawns and, and doing pond work and draining ponds and, and tabling, tabulating fish and measuring them and crossing them and things like that. And then, um, and then I, he really uh, changed my life because uh, after I graduated my senior year, 
he uh, he offered me the opportunity for a research assistantship uh, up at Queen's University Biological Station. And Queen's University Biological Station is where he had been doing research for 30 years and had really made a 40 or 50 year career out of doing research at this biology station in Here's where his connection, southeastern Ontario, oh, okay. where Queen's University is located and where I eventually, doing research over the years at this research biology station, Queen's University Biological Station, met my wife. Oh, well, perfect. So, Serendipitous. Yeah, exactly. And she was into uh, uh, basically into ecology and she was getting a, 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 she was doing her undergraduate thesis on uh, snakes, actually, and she was working at the same biology station. We got to know each other and fell in love and married now with four children. Uh, we are now uh, raising them and, and have a cottage literally 20 minutes away from the biology station where we met. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. What year was this that all this yeah, was going on? Okay, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just about turned 50, so I, uh, it was 92. Okay. It was my first summer after my senior year at the University of Illinois. That was 1992, and that was the summer I spent doing research for Dave full-time up at the biology station. And then I came back in the successive years. Um, again, I came back like in 97, 98, 99, 2000, and it was 97 when I met my wife. Okay. Now, there was a three, about a three-year hiatus there where I didn't, um, come up to the biology station. And that's because Dave Phillip, the fellow who I did the undergraduate research with, he offered me um, a graduate research assistantship, which is obviously, you may or may not know, it's when a research uh, um, a group or uh, basically a research lab has enough sufficient dollars and they're a full-time professor at the university and they have an avenue of money where they can offer graduate research assistantships to students who get uh, graduate degrees in their lab, but that means that their master's degree and actually all their grad school is free. Okay. They get an assistantship to live on. And so I was, you know, making back then $1,400 a month on the assistantship and all my graduate school was free. Oh, that's a good. So route it was to a go. great opportunity to, yeah, good route to go. And he offered me this opportunity, and I obviously uh, it changed my life because I was able to get a master's degree with him. Then I got my first full time teaching position in um, up at one of the tech colleges in Wisconsin, teaching anatomy and physiology and biology. Okay, and uh, up in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, and then because I had my summers off then. I used to come up and be Dave's research assistant for the summers of 97, 98, 99, 2000. And that's where I met my wife. And, and I was heavily involved in all the research that was going on at the biology station, the fisheries research uh, uh, during those years. What, what were some of the projects that you remember working on or that you guys, you know, are, are the mo- that stick in your yeah, brain the most, so, like, like the most impactful, it, to, you know, to you as an angler where you just thought it was really cool or, you know, fascinating? Right. Well... Let, let me let me just backtrack for one second. This is something that uh, I was about to get into, and that is the reason I had a three-year hiatus and wasn't up at the biology station for three summers in a row, that when I, when I was actively doing my own master's degree research for my master's degree. And my, my master's degree was a molecular genetics master's degree with a fisheries application. Ooh. So what we looked at is we were we looking at the different um, stocks of smallmouth bass across the three different drainages in the Midwest, uh, up in up in Minnesota, tr- draining north, uh, the Great Lakes drainage, and then the Mississippi River drainage. And throughout, we had over 60 um, uh, populations of fish from over 60 lakes across Minnesota, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And we looked if there was genetic differences among the different drainages because the fish in each drainage should be evolutionary connected to each other through history 
And we want to see if actually stocking had any perturbations, any influences on the native strains of those fishes. So mine was a heavily a, a genetics and evolutionary look at the fish, but that meant that I had to be back in Champaign working in the genetics lab the whole time with like, you know, you know, running PCR gels and, and, and southern blotting gels and protein electrophoresis and all that stuff to look at the genetic underlyings of the three different drainage uh, three different subspecies, if you will, small and fast across those drainages, and if stocking had any influences on the genetics of those of those groups of fishes. What, what, so that was what genetic of, markers were you guys looking for for the differences? Well, we were we were looking at anything that showed some polymorphic differences. So anything that showed some key differences, and I did discover one um, basically. Uh, restriction enzyme uh, that, that on the mitochondrial DNA of the fish that actually showed significant differences across the three drainages. Okay. So there was a unique um, unique allele that the one from the fish from Minnesota draining north had, and that was different from the one uh, that was shared between the Mississippi and the Great Lakes. Okay, uh, so your conclusion so, so your conclusion was stocking did have a genetic effect on it. Uh, so the conclusion was basically that we did find evidence of differences across three drain- drainages. Okay. And we also found that actually we we weren't sure that the stock, we didn't see much evidence of uh, stocked fish per, um, um, persisting and influencing the, the genes of these fish very much at all. And we weren't sure why, because my study didn't investigate that. It may have been that the stock fish didn't survive uh, because they weren't, you know, microevolutionarily, you know, natural selection weren't totally, you know, sort of um, used to the local environment. Sure. So the stockfish may not have had as big impact on the genetic infrastructure of the of the of the populations as we might have thought. But that wasn't really what the study was saying. So I can't I can't claim that conclusively. But that's what we kind of thought after looking at all the data. Oh, cool. So how did that affect so now, you? how did that affect you as an angler? Like you know, getting involved in this side of things, did it made you look? Did it make you look at the fishing aspect of it any different? I think it did not make me look at the fishing aspect any differently. I think what it did is it it made it, it definitely gave me an appreciation for how uh, specialized in terms of natural selection and evolution fish are to their particular environments and even their particular lakes. Right, And so when you take a fish from far away, because it grows bigger, let's say a test bass or a Florida bass, and you want to stack those in northern lakes, you have to understand, and this is what I learned, that those fish, even though they grow big in Texas and Florida, there is no guarantee they're going to go grow big in a northern Minnesota lake or a northern Michigan lake because they have completely different enzymes and, and, and how they process food longer times of the year and even mating times because the water is warmer, longer seasons down there, and the fish become highly specialized to the environments in which they live. Right. So it made me sus- it made me really question these large-scale stocking programs that bring fish from far away to lakes very different from or you know or, or, or to lakes very different from where they those fish originally evolved or the, the hatcheries from which they came. So why do you think so that, that was right. it didn't affect Go ahead. Go ahead. I said, why do you think folks go to those fisheries that are further away? Is it just because, um, is it more experimental or is it more like gene pool where like we want the bass from 
whatever, like you said, like a down south fishery to come up here because they grow bigger. Uh, they grow bigger down there. Is that what they're thinking of? Why they stock so far from so far away? I, I think so. I think um, uh, I think you know, in different areas of the nation, stocking has been a much bigger part of the management. Um, scheme, and it was especially a big scheme in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the impounded lakes, a lot of the, the, the dammed up lakes and reservoirs, and so stocking was a big part of all the programs, uh, in, especially in the south and, and in the southwest and west and whatnot. And I think that um, uh, the mentality was stock and it works, and it may work within those regions when you use those fish from those regions to stock new lakes or things like that. Sure. Um, but 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 when you start stocking across, you know, significant, you know, climatological differences and types of lakes and things like that, it may not be as perfect or as ideal situation. But I think people were so used to stocking and and, and basically so convinced that bigger fish could be grown through stocking. Uh, there was a whole, you know, bastion of research and, 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 and um, management movements that really did believe in that back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I think it's been a slow process to kind of uh, take a step back and say, is stocking really working as well as we thought? And now we're starting to say, actually, stocking doesn't work nearly as well as we thought, at least a lot of the northern lakes. Uh, that we've been uh, dealing with Ontario, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, et cetera. So here's a question. Would you be able to take a, a fish down, let's say from like Pennsylvania and run it up in Northern Michigan and do a stocking program up in Northern Michigan? And would that fish be able to survive in that, um, you know, that kind of a, a region or climate change with going more north like that? Or are you saying the fish has to stay within that region in order to thrive in a stocking program? Meaning like if you're taking fish from a Pennsylvania lake and, and planting them elsewhere, it's got to be within that, that region and climate. Okay. So I would say, um, first of all, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not as involved with the research anymore. And so I can't speak to this perfectly, Okay. but, um, just from a biological perspective, I would say that let's just think about it this way. You're taking a fish from uh, Lake Huron, right? Lake Huron's yeah. one of the great lakes, it's cold. And, and here, and you know what, here, the, the, the lake has, it's at different temperatures at different times of the year than, for example, Inland Lake. And so that's going to influence mating times and, and, and egg development time in the females. Also, you have to look at how these fish are specialized with all the digestive enzymes and all the, the timing of what they eat based on the forage, what they're feeding on. And I can imagine there's a different forage structure in Lake Huron than there is in one of the inland lakes, perhaps, sure. you know, depending on how big the inland lake is or whatnot. And so, and the fish, they need to go deeper, chasing schools of bait fish out in the middle of the lake, you know, over, you know, over basically a sort of pelagic system out in the middle, rather than up along the shore on the reefs or shoals, which, it, which the walleye might do more so uh, in an inland lake. So all this, you know, kind of, uh, gets into how they grow and, 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 and how they've survived throughout throughout time, basically evolving to the specific species of food items they're eating yeah. and how that affects mating times and growth and development of the young and so on and so forth. So yeah, I, you, you just have to sort of look at, it's more complex and you sort of have to look at those sort of, of things when you're thinking about stocking, which obviously people didn't really look at back in the 70s and 80s and things like that, but now are definitely, definitely starting to take a lot more consideration. Right. You know, it makes you think of, of how awesome the, the, the stocking 
program, the success of it for salmon in the Great Lakes and how well that was, you know, how well that, that took off. Really, you know what I mean? You're, you're exactly right. I mean, that is one that really uh, has has taken off and has sustained Really, yeah, and I mean that's taking a fish from you know an ocean situation, the Pacific Ocean, and putting them in the Great Lakes, and you know I, I would have been I would have been pretty critical of that. I would have said that's never going to work. You know, there's never what for for some crazy reasons it did. You know, and I think uh, you know some of those forward species are similar enough to how they behave and where they are, and and the fish, yeah, the, the, the the Pacific salmon, man, they they've done really well and created quite a tremendous fishery. Uh, in the Great Lakes, you know, uh, over the years. Now, that's a, a sort of a artificial fishery because those those fish are not native there. Um, but it has brought in a lot of you know tourism dollars and, and angling dollars and, and supported whole industries. Uh, and so I I can't be too critical of it because you know I enjoy doing it too. I enjoy catching coho or catching a big salmon in Lake Michigan as much as anywhere else. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but I would say that it, you know. Not really the natural approach, but <laughs> you're, I would agree with you, successful. <laughs> well, at least we don't have to get on an airplane but, and fly a couple hours away. We can just drive, you know, drive a couple hours and go right. get some fresh salmon. It's kind of nice. Exactly. Now, it has probably uh, impacted somewhat um, the uh, lake trout. Of course, lake trout yeah. or the top apex predator uh, at the time. Um, and, you know, that that is, there's something to be said for that. But they also, lake trout also got, uh, whacked by the sea lamprey and things like that. So uh, it was kind of, got, they got kind of double whammied, but they're kind of going up and down, you know, through cycles as well. Like, like all those, uh, you know, predator prey models sort of show. Yep. So uh, Lee, one thing is, is, is uh, after I did sort of my work with uh, uh, the, the conservation genetics of smallmouth bass across the Midwest drainages, I then became very much involved with, um, uh, monitoring smallmouth bass nesting. Yes, uh, this is what I wanted to talk about. All sorts of studies. Yeah, all sorts of studies up here out, out of Queen's University Biological Station and under the auspices of Dr. David Phillip, uh, Dave Phillip again, who uh, ha- had a really robust research operation up here and doing all sorts of things. And the, the basic level was monitoring uh, largemouth and smallmouth, the black basses, the black bass uh, nesting season, and monitoring uh, the reproductive success of these, of these fish, basically monitoring their nesting success, if you will. And then if they had a successful nest by the end of the year, that is reared a successful uh, uh, underling, yearling uh, group of fry. And uh, we monitored them on a on, on nearly daily basis. We, we'd swim literally you know, hundreds of kilometers of shoreline uh, uh, every week, and we'd go to nest after nest after nest, and and make sure the male was still there, and the and the and the, the eggs fry and and young were developing, and we would do this for a, a basically twelve different lakes, and we would look at how well they do uh, both in the and with uh, preseason angling being allowed, or in areas where basically uh, we call them sanctuaries, bass nesting sanctuaries, where there was no fishing allowed. And we've, we've even done manipulation studies where we've actually man- uh, manipulated uh, bass uh, off of nests. And we've um, basically manipulated their eggs and their young. We've increased it, decreased it, angled them, not angled them, all sorts of different um, scenarios to see what things really impact if 
a bass is successful at rearing his young on a given year. And that is research that's been done all over southeastern Ontario. And, and Dave Philip really has done the most. He and his, his basically, his colleagues and, and his, his students over the years who have gone on to get their own PhDs and start research endeavors, are really, it's his, his legion that is really the one that uh, has done the, the lion's share of research on this on this topic. Okay. And before we get into the results of that, I just kind of want to just review and set the stage of like what anglers might be thinking about some of your research that you've done. So what a big reason why I had Jim come on the podcast today for everybody listening is, I mean, it's a little bit later in the season, but this applies even going into next year's spring and things like that. But what I'm, what I was curious about is if, you know, some of the best times to go bass fishing or smallmouth bass fishing, things like that, um, especially up in northern Michigan where I just moved from, um, a lot of folks can sight fish and you'll see these a lot of these smallmouth bass on their beds and things like that. And so it's kind of like an age-old question of like, you know, you talk to some anglers and they would say, um, you know, as long as the season's open, but I, I leave the bass alone when they're on their beds because it can negatively impact their, you know, their success of their fry. And then there's other guys or other, you know, anglers that say, you know, you can catch them on their beds and let them go and they go right back down to their beds and it has no kind of effect on their fry whatsoever. So for everybody mm-hmm. listening out there, the reason why I had Jim on is he's obviously just as he laid out, has been involved in this, uh, a similar kind of study like this. And that's why it, I thought it would be great for everybody to hear your guys' findings of what you did as like you were talking about manipulating the the bass on their beds, whether that was through angling or, or shifting different things around. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what you guys found out. So, and um, and we we published uh, a big study in in 1993. First of all, um, and sorry, 2003. Uh, in 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 1997, Dave Phillip uh, published uh, 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 a publication in uh, I forget which journal, but it's uh, Dave Phillip 1997, and he basically was able to demonstrate that. Um, angling fish preseason up here in Ontario anyways, because the season doesn't open until, you know, the third, third week weekend of June, they have a closed bass fisheries up here in Ontario to the third weekend in June. Okay. And, um, so, so that helps protect them a little bit, but they did end up moving that date up a little bit. And on certain years where that first Saturday comes actually around the 15th or 16th, rather than <laughs> uh, the third week. Uh, and if you have a cold, like we did this year, a cold spring, uh, you can really, the fish can really be right at the height of their nesting and there can be, uh, the season can kind of drop on them and open up right while the nests are, st- the fish are still on the nest, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's pretty, yep. it those bad years, right? And so, um, and so, but this goes back, this goes back before when it was, might've, uh, the season might've been closed a little longer, another week longer. And it, uh, also, um, and so this study was done, and it really did show that when uh, smallmouth bass are angled off their nests, that it does have an impact, a negative impact, on the reproductive success or on the nesting success and, and rearing of those young. Uh, and then we sort of did a follow-up study after that 1997 study. Again, Dave Phillip was, was it, but for the fellow who published it as part of his master's degree work was a, a researcher who is now a professor at University of Illinois, Corey Susky. 
Susky, S-U-S-K-I. And this was, I was part of this study and I'm one of the authors on this, on this publication and that we published this in 2003. And in this study, we actually, to cut to the chase, we actually um, uh, chose bass in Lake Charleston, right near the biology station up here in Ontario. And we actually had about six different experimental groups in a control group, uh, five different experimental groups in a control group. And what we essentially did is we didn't angle or do anything with one group as the control. And then one group, we actually angled. And while that fish was in the boat for five minutes, we removed half of its fry. Okay. And then we monitored how it did throughout the rest of the season. And then we also uh, took other fish and we uh, angled them. But instead of removing fry from their nest, we took the 50% removed from the other nest and we put those babies in the, in their nest. So they were the, the, the augmented group. So instead of being uh, having their nest reduced, it was actually augmented with more babies, twice more twice as many babies as before. Okay. And we also did a nest where we simulated predation with these bluegill models and, 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 and sunfish models. We, uh, per, we did um, basically, uh, we did a group where we sort of looked at some, uh, mimics some predation. Anyways, long story short is the, the results were, were somewhat predictable, but also very, uh, very easy to see and, and, and very statistically significant. And it was when these angled fish were angled, if they were put back in the water and their, their, the number of eggs in their nest was close to what, what they were before they were angled, they would stay on the nest, finish the season, and have a successful nest. However, when we took the bass off the nest by angling and then reduced their eggs by half, that fish went back, and in many, many, many of those nests, like two-thirds of them actually, the male quit. No way. The male gave up. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? And then in the... Um, I, I think they do this because the males have a long time commitment up to six weeks each summer in these Northern lakes and they're not eating a lot and they're working their butts off um, keeping predators away from their eggs and their babies. Uh-huh. And they're constantly corralling the babies. And I think if, if, if they basically, there's a, there must be a cost benefit decision somewhere deep in their evolutionary psyche that says, look, if, if my eggs were this and now they're only this, it isn't worth all my efforts around yeah. actually, you know, not to put too much of a you know anthropomorphic spin on it, but I think that's a little bit what's going on, right? Right. And, and in fact, I kind of see that it was interesting. There were other fish, as I said, that were angled and were kept in the boat for five minutes in the cooler, just like those angled fish where we reduced the eggs. But this time, instead, we did what? We actually augmented it and put more eggs in the nest. And those males stayed all season and successfully reared their young. Wow. So even though they're angled, they actually went right back to nest, and, and, and because they didn't see a reduction in their eggs, they actually stayed with, with the fry and, and, and had successful nesting season. And then, uh, and then fish that were, uh, yeah. So, so I think one of the things that, that is, is very hard to predict because it's a different lake by lake by lake, I would say that the most critical thing is you can have a bass angled off its nest and if that bass can get back to its nest relatively quickly without being too physiologically exhausted or stressed out, and if its eggs haven't been eaten in the meantime to, to a significant degree, it will often stay and finish the nesting season with a successful nest. But here's the thing you have to understand. In some lakes with high levels of uh, 
uh, predators, egg predators like perch and sunfish and bluegill and all that, you know, on their, and they're just around the nest all the time. In fact, they'll sneak in right when the male turns his head the other way. Yeah. They'll sneak in and grab the egg all day long. Or when so you're reeling that fit, where anglers are reeling that fish in, they got them both sides. They you take, I mean, the nest has been exposed to predators that have been lurking to come in the entire time. You're exactly right. And, yep. and see, some lakes have high predator density loads, like are loaded with panfish, and then therefore it's going to be even more taxing on, on those lakes and on those nests. Other lakes, you know, panfish are relatively few and, and sparse, you know, like these big, deep, oligotrophic lakes, you know. Uh, you know, they don't have tons of littles also, maybe not as much, you know, per day. They're of oh, hang on, Jim. You're breaking up a little bit. Okay. Yep. Sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, there's many prey that want to get in and into that nest, those highly nutritive eggs. Uh, and so uh, the male being on the nest is uh, key. And whenever that male's off the nest for any reason, for any length of time, there's a chance that his prayer, that his babies are being consumed. And that right there, once they're consumed to a certain level, that's when the, the male will just give up for the year. So anglers have a decision to make, kind of like a personal, I guess it would be moral, whatever they think their morals are when it comes to fishing, how they want their fishery to to thrive. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, a lot of guys and gals like to go out and, and fish that time of year, like you said, though, because it can be, it's different every year. You know, the season may be open, but all these fish are still on their beds and, you know, they're having a blast reeling them in, not knowing the, the true effect right. that they're having on their nests and things like that. So I think us as anglers have a decision to make, you know, whether that's in their moral or ethical standards to right. to fish for them that time of year or, or leave them alone. That's correct. And the long-term impacts on the population yeah. uh, from consistently hammering these, these, these nesting fish. Um, like I said, the research shows that if our research shows very easily that if you angle a bass off a nest, get that bass in quickly, it's a really easy hook to get out and you put that bass back in, it goes right back to the nest. Yep. And with little harm done, maybe it lost maybe only, you know, 5% of its eggs, you know, hey, it's still going to stick on that and stick out the season and raise that nest successfully. But, but every time you're picking these guys off or if a fish is caught multiple times. So even the research now, especially this season, we took a good look at the nesting bass in a couple of lakes around here this season. And because it was such a cold uh, spring and an early opening day, we saw nesting bass that had multiple hook wounds. They had four or five hook wounds, meaning that these males had been caught four or five times over the course of a couple of weeks wow. and were, were still on the nest, on the beds, but their eggs were reduced, not to a level where they're given up, but the eggs were reduced. And you wonder if you're hitting, cause it's amazing how good fisher anglers are now, how good fishermen are now, how much you can actually hit every nest and pick these these bass off by sight and they're highly aggressive right that's oh, why yeah. it's so fun to here and so but they're very vulnerable and you if you're there you're being reeled in over and over again you know multiple times during a season which they are we, we have evidence multiple hook wounds and many 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 of our fish man you know that their that their number of fry are reduced because of that well, not only that too, is there, I'm sure there's some kind of physiological stress that they go under catching them that many times. Like you said, they might get to the point where it's like, listen, I've been caught this many times. Now I'm in jeopardy of, 
you know, dying myself and then they just leave the nest to go off and recuperate or anything like that. Is that any, a possibility as well? Yeah, you are hundred percent. That you're, you're exactly right. Okay. You're hundred percent right. That's what happens to, there's some physiological stress that happens to these fish. And when, even sometimes if it's a real bad hook and it happens once, it may be enough to have them stop nesting. Yeah. Uh, other times there's a cumulative effect, like you said, and you know, you gotta, you gotta think, okay. So, um, what we really need to figure out now is, is the cumulative effect of, of in one lake of angling all these nesting bass, does it reduce the fry numbers enough so that you see it hit, hurt, negatively impact the year class, the recruitment of those year's fish into the future population and into future adulthood? And that's a hard question because you need to almost have an entire lake to do research on. Right. Luckily, Dave Phillip is in charge of an area known as the Canuck, Canuck Nature, and it's in Quebec. And there's about 11 lakes, and he has the ability, because he's the sole uh, fisheries manager, director of fisheries manager there, to literally for entire summers in a row, and then open them back up and fish them again. And he's trying to track year classes, which ones have strong year classes that, that go on and become adults and, and help the population in the future, and which year classes are negatively impacted. And even though this research has not been published yet, he told me the other day that basically there is a profound difference in recruitment, the number of, of adults that come from a, a year class when they're born, angling and hammering those nests uh, in the pre in, in the, in the nesting season, leaving them alone. Oh, okay. And so there, there is, now we're trying to figure out that actually maybe the angling doesn't affect a given nest directly. The male will still finish off the season, but with reduced numbers of fry. And if that happens on all the nests in the lake, you really reduce that those fry so much that it isn't a strong year class reaching adulthood eventually, you know, three, four, five years later when that happens in that particular lake. And so basically, uh, this is a little bit of the more larger scale negativeness of bass nests in a, one lake getting hammered over and over and all the nests being hammered. And that's why he's t- starting to think he's become, becoming a proponent of uh, sanctuaries where there's no fishing at all throughout the year in certain parts of the lake. Okay. With bass that can survive and then repopulate the rest of the lake. Do the DNR work with you guys to to take these studies into consideration and as to when they open the season? Like, I mean, for us here in Michigan every year, yeah. it's always like, you know, labor, it's always, I'm sorry, Memorial Day weekend, right around there is when bass fishing o- opens for us. Right. And they they don't really take into consideration the fact that maybe you had a longer winter or a colder spring uh, and the, these fish are still not even, you know, off the beds yet. You're correct. Um, they, they do not move the day on weather or any other reasons. They lock it in, like, like I mentioned earlier, Ontario. Um, I think to try to compete with Pennsylvania and some other places, uh, who, who, Hey, how are you doing? Okay. That's, that's a gr- much better connection. So, so you're saying oh, good. In, in, in Ontario, they did change the season dates. Yeah, but I'm not sure exactly when, but approximately 10 years ago, okay. they moved the, the season up a week. Um, and so it used to be closer to the end of June. Now it's the third Saturday in June. 
Okay. And, uh, or it might even be the second Saturday in June. I'm not sure. And um, so they did move it up. And I, I think there's a lot of pressure from, you know, local communities who rely on tourism dollars and the fishing lodges and the fishing industries and bait and tackle shops and whatnot. So you get pressure both ways. So the MNR gets pressure from the scientists saying, look, we should leave this alone, but the lake owners and, and some of these, uh, you know, obviously uh, businesses uh, need need the ability to be able to open early enough to draw people up here to make, to make a living. Sure. Yeah. And they try to plan some of that time, like here in Michigan, they plan that around holidays. You know what I mean? So they know Memorial Day weekend, right. there's going to be a lot of people coming up north uh, that want exactly. to do some fishing and things like that. So um, that's interesting. I, you know, the future of, you know, fishing, just the fishing down the road in general, um, as more of these studies come out and, you know, because us as anglers have a choice to make, right? So we've got, you know, right. we've got to protect our fisheries, you know, and we can be our own worst enemy sometimes. So like all that money and all the dollars that we stick into for folks like you guys to do some research and, you know, and the feedback that you provide, well, that might mean that we're fishing less or, you know, waiting longer to go after the species we want to go after, but it's for the greater good of the the population for future generations to come. So... That's interesting. Well, that's just in that. That's that's the you know that's the the real kind of uh, moral and ethical quandary is is you know uh, you want immediate gratification and want the best fishing now because you can have it if you if you if you keep the seasons open early and you're, you can you can target fish while they're nesting. Man, you're going to catch great fish, lots of fish. But uh, there are definitely lakes uh, and, and and definitely lakes that have proven it that where the fishing isn't what it used to be. And I think in a large part, especially with the black basses, you know, the largemouth and all bass. It has a direct direct impact because you're pulling these fish uh, off of their nests, off their beds during nesting season. Are you involved in any research topics right now or in the future that you know that's coming up? I, I, like I said, I, I, I know Dave is doing, I help him a little bit with those research projects up in Quebec where he's closing down lakes and then open up other lakes. Um, but no, I'm not directly involved at, at, at this point with any heavy research. Uh, if, if, if you want to think about bass research, uh, there's, there's, there's like about three or four different names that you definitely want to, uh, uh, look up. And, um, there's a, uh, researcher, obviously David Phillip. And now he's, he's retired now, but he's still actively involved in some research. Uh, he has one of his students, Steve Cook, C-O-O-K-E, from, uh, the, uh, from Carleton University in Ottawa, is doing great studies, great studies on, on bass. And so is Mark Ridgway. Mark Ridgway uh, is doing studies out of, uh, of Toronto, but he does his studies up in Algonquin Park in the Harkness uh, Fishers Lab in Lake Opiango in Algonquin Park and, and Ridgeway and Cook and, and, and Philip are names that you want to know to, to learn more about, uh, uh, the black bass, uh, spawning and impacts of angling thereof. Being an angler yourself, is there a certain study that you would like to see conducting on any kind of species? It could be outside of bass that you're curious about and you think that would be interesting to know about. Um, one one thing that's always eluded me, um, and and I I'm, I I admit I'm a little rare in this. I really like to uh, to catch northern pike. I always have. A lot of people don't. We don't have much walleye water around us here, nor nor much uh, musky water here uh, in in where I, in my immediate uh, area of Ontario. And so, but we do have pike. 
And uh, I wonder why some of the lakes around here, which we would think would be great, would, would grow very large pike, just seem to have these stunted populations. And so um, we we have been tracking pike in, in a given lake at the biology station for for about 25 years. Uh, I'm not sure what the data shows or if, we're, if it's ever going to be valuable, but we have been uh, putting pit tags in pike and doing a recapture study for, for a long time with Dave Phillip and others. But uh, I, I, I'd be interested to see, you know, how come... Some lakes have some massive, really large pike, and other lakes have, you know, relatively uh, small stunted populations. Do you think it has to do, I've got to, I mean, I, I agree with you. That's interesting because there's a lake up north that my folks have a have a cottage on. And, you know, it's it's one of those lakes where it's crystal clear. It looks like Caribbean water. You know, obviously smallmouth bass do extremely well in it. But, you know, the DNR have been stocking walleye, and there's also been pike in there too. But... I'm finding the same thing that you are. I'm curious because every pike that I catch out of there, like you said, seems stunted. It doesn't, everyone's like 18 inches and you know, like that's about it. And then the same thing with the walleye, the walleye, they keep dumping the walleye in there and they're saying that they're, they're doing okay, but I've only caught one so far and we've been on that lake for three years. They Mm -hmm. almost seem impossible to catch. And I wonder if that has to do with how clear the lake is, the lack of structure and the weeds and all that kind of stuff for the predator fish. I think it has to do with all those things. Um, And it's funny, our lake here too, you know, it's a, it's pretty deep lake and um, it has lake trout and it's great for smallmouth. It's also decent for largemouth. And I know there's some big pike in here, but man, they're few and far between. Yeah. Uh, And, and so it's very, it's, they're very, maybe I'm not targeting correctly. Yeah, <laughs> that could be, yeah, four, exactly. Four, it could be you and I. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, I'm telling you, I don't even hear about a lot of people catching tons of bikes, but, uh, so yeah, I think I, I really do believe that even a system that a single lake is so complex, it's really hard to figure out. Uh, exactly what's going on. As much as research has been done, as much as we do, it's it's kind of an, uh, an ever-changing uh, dynamic, and there's so many variables. It's really, really, uh, it's not quite as easy uh, to control uh, lakes and stock lakes and make them perfect fisheries as we once thought. Yep, I agree with that. It's 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 interesting because you know a lot of folks they always try to make the lake into what their their perfect ideal situation is. Like you know if uh, you know, for instance, like me personally, I'm a big walleye guy. So I would really mm-hmm. like to see that lake in northern Michigan that my parents are on. You know, I, I want it to sure. become a walleye factory. It'd be great because it's just out the, the our doorstep. But the reality sure. is I think it's a better smallmouth lake. And I'm going to have to, uh, you know, just accept the fact that that's what it's, you know, that's the fish that thrives well, in that lake. And, you know, maybe one day walleye will. But it's 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 just selfish of me to think that, man, I really want the walleye to do good in there. Right. And I, I think that's uh, a great point. I think people uh, want uh, what they want and want to fish what they fish want to fish for, but not every lake can, can support right. uh, exactly what, what they want. And, um, you know, I think that's where a lot of complaints come from is I think there's a false assumption out there that, that fisheries management can, can make lakes what they, what, what anglers want them to be. And I'm not sure that's always the case in every lake. So you almost have to just kind of deal with the hand you're dealt and, and make the most of that rather than, you know, kind of squawking always about the fact that this particular fish isn't doing well or, 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 or used to be or isn't. And that's a good point too. 
you never know. You, you sort of alluded to it. You said maybe the, the, walleye, the walleye fish will get there someday right. uh, in, in that lake, but it just takes some time. So the lakes do change too. And sometimes fishing is bad for, you know, a few years, but all of a sudden it rebounds. And so you, that can happen too. That's interesting. Well, Jim, I, so at I, least you're, yes. No, I'll keep going. Go ahead. Uh, I, well, at least I'm hoping, and I, I, you, I would like to know about, you say you're now a little closer to Lake Erie? So, yeah, so I just moved back downstate um, to Dundee, which is really close to Lake Erie. And, uh, you know, that's where I'm going to be spending most of my time. Obviously, it's great to go after walleye out there. Um, right. I was just going to say you, that you should at least get your fix of walleye from Lake Erie, yeah. provided that the Lake Erie walleye are doing well. Yeah, exactly. And they are. I mean, that's uh, that's another sure. topic that I want to cover. I've got somebody else coming on the podcast to talk about yep. that. I mean, sure. everyone's been reading in articles, you know, how great Erie's doing with walleye. It seems like this this year's class has just been booming and doing extremely well. But Good. So, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting, but you also have to uh, treat it with care. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just things like this, you know, whatever, whatever more we can learn about, um, you know, walleye, for instance, you know, if, we, if it changes us as anglers and our practices and how we harvest them and things like that, I'm all for it as long as it keeps the, the fishery, you know, healthy for many generations, but it's just getting everybody along that same mindset. Cause not everybody obviously practices, you know, fishing the same. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I like your mindset, Lee, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate you trying to spread the message to everyone because I, th- I think you, you have a great uh, view, uh, a great perspective. Awesome. Well, Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast today and spending time with us. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. And uh, good luck and, and good luck uh, after all sports fish, but especially those walleye for you. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. All right, Lee. Thank you. There you go, ladies and gents. I hope you guys learned something there from Jim. You know, I'm glad that there's, uh, you know, folks like that out there like Jim putting in the research and asking, you know, the questions and, and and being curious enough to see how us as anglers are impacting our fisheries in in ways that some of us might not think that we we are, you know, like bass fishermen, you know, whether you're 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 fishing for bass or sight fishing for bass on the beds or not, at least you kind of know and you have some kind of data that you can revert to now um, and, and know what you're, what you could potentially be doing, not only to your fishery but for future generations to come. So, I want to thank Jim for coming on the podcast. Hope you guys are doing well and you guys are enjoying these podcasts. Kind of getting into more of the, you know, the biology side of things and fishing and uh, any way that us anglers can continue to educate ourselves and uh, outside of just you know the obvious everyday how to catch fish but more of like getting to actually know the species of fish that we're going after i feel is important and will make us all better anglers so in the meantime folks head on over to freshwaterbite.com and you'll see some of the show notes and the articles that jim sent me based on his research and their results that they found you can read about them more in depth over there on the website Remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, follow me over on Instagram, um, Freshwater Bite, and on Facebook page, uh, the Freshwater Bite Podcast. And remember to check out all the great material coming out over on the Sportsman's Nation uh, network and sportsmansnation.com. We've got a lot of great material coming out right now, especially as we start to look around and turn the corner towards fall. All of you uh, hunters out there getting ready for uh, whether it's elk because September's next month and or you know deer season. We've got a lot of great articles over there 
uh, with everyone submitting podcasts, articles, recipes, tips, tricks, and a bunch of other stuff. So go check it out over at the Sportsman's Nation. And as always, I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.